0: Last year, we started a series on the book of Exodus, uh, and after preaching through the first 14 chapters, uh, we took a pause in the fall to preach on the fruit of the Spirit, and then we had our Christmas series on the advent of Christ. Well, uh, with this new year, we're going back to Exodus, uh, in the second half of the book, and uh, this part of Exodus, we've, or I've titled it uh, Faith in the Wilderness, Faith in the Wilderness. In the first 14 chapters of Exodus, we learned about God remembering his people and him delivering them from slavery through Moses, his servant. We learned about Moses' call into ministry, about his life. We learned about God's contest with Pharaoh and the ten plagues over Egypt. And the final message of that series was Israel's miraculous crossing through the Red Sea. In our passage today, Moses and Israel, they're now on the other side of the Red Sea. They're looking back and they are amazed. They're amazed at God's miraculous deliverance. And they're entering into the wilderness. And although they don't know it, they have a 40-year journey ahead of them. And the first thing that they do as they've crossed the Red Sea, right? uh, the first thing that they do is worship. They worship God. Moses and all the people of Israel sang a song to the Lord in response to what God had done for them. You see church singing and music it's it's one of the most natural and human things we do in life. It's not a uniquely Christian endeavor to sing and to celebrate with music. Rarely is there a significant moment in our lives that is not accompanied by music and singing. We sing at birthdays, holidays, weddings, even funerals. Every country has a national anthem. Every school has a fight song. If you are a true fan, you know it, right? Uh, USC Trojans, you better know that fight song, Um, even though we haven't had much to sing about lately. Um, And music brings us all together. When it comes to music, it's not a matter of whether or not you enjoy music, it's a question of what kind of music you enjoy. Growing up, I was all about that gangster rap and hip hop, right? and then I kind of moved on. My dad like, kind of threw away all my, my rap CDs. And so I had to pick a new genre of music. Right? And so I went to Dave Matthews and U2 and, and Pearl Jam and, and, and that style of music. And then I had an embarrassing stint uh, where I was really into boy bands. So I even went to like an Sync concert and a Backstreet Boys concert. And I was really into uh, K-pop and DJ Doc and all of those. D.O.C. Sorry, D.O.C. Um... All of, of that. Uh, the one genre I never got into was EDM. It makes no sense to me. Um, and later in life, as I tried to be more mature and cultured and sophisticated, I tried to listen to some jazz and some classical. But lately, uh, my go-to station on Pandora, it's uh, Baby Einstein because of my son, Seth. Uh, but after, like, weeks and months of, of that channel, I had to block Baby Shark. I just, I just couldn't take it anymore, so uh, that doesn't show up on my Pandora feed. There was an interesting article in Time magazine that tried to explain why we crave music so much and why it's so pervasive. Why is music and singing so pervasive across all human cultures? And it was interesting for me to read that from an evolutionary point of view, for those who hold to evolution, music makes no sense. Music makes no sense. Unlike sex or food, music does nothing for survival or reproduction. As I read that, I thought, I don't think the author listened to Marvin Gaye. Um, (laughs) Yet, right, yet, humans, so even though evolutionarily speaking, music makes no sense. There's no explanation for why every culture, right, every tribe has been, you know, a tribe and a people group with music, some form, some shape of it. Humans have been doing that and making and enjoying music for as long as we've been around. But one of the reasons why music is so pervasive in every generation and culture is because it engages both our emotions and our intellect. It engages both the heart and the head. We use music to express our emotions. When we listen to certain songs, it evokes nostalgia and memory. And according to research, it even affects our cognitive decision making. Well, the Bible tells us why we are a musical people, why we sing. right? And the reason is because it's part of God's design. It's the way God has created and wired us. We were made to sing and make music. One theologian, Peter Enns, formerly of Westminster Seminary, he writes this. Singing is a human trait because it is a divine trait. We sing because God sings. In Zephaniah 3.17, Zephaniah the prophet, he tells us that God will quiet us by his love. And he will exult over us with loud singing. Our God is a God who sings over his people. And he invites us to sing our hearts back to him. He invites us to respond to his person. Respond to his goodness. Respond to his love with songs of our own. And as we look today in our passage in uh, Exodus 15, we're going to study the song of Moses. And we're going to see that worship is a response to who God is, to what he has done, and all that he will do. Worship is grounded in the person of God, in his past works, and his promised future works to come. And these are the three ideas that are going to shape the message. And unlike most messages where I read the passage at the top, uh, we're going to read the passage in three parts as we move through each point. Responding to who God is as the first step, the first aspect of worship. In verses 1 to 3, we have the introduction to Moses' song, and it's a response to the Exodus. Verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. His horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Amen. God has triumphed over his enemies. He has drowned Pharaoh's army in the sea. And God's people are remembering who he is. They are remembering and celebrating the fact that he is their strength and their song. That he has become their salvation. He is their God. They are his people. And their God is the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Their God, Yahweh, is a man of war. That is his name. And just think about that. Think about the the, the language, the imagery of who God is here in Moses' song. Israel was delivered from slavery without lifting a single sword. Without firing a single arrow against their enemies. Israel had no army. They were utterly weak in bondage to one of the greatest empires of the ancient world. And yet, they were liberated. Yet, they were victorious. Yes, they had experienced triumph because God was their strength. Because God was their deliverer. The Lord, their God, he fought for them as a mighty warrior. Friends, do you believe that your God fights for you? Do you believe that your God, our God, is a mighty warrior? That when the, God, when the Bible declares, vengeance is mine, I will repay. That is a promise from our Lord. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Do you take God at his word? You see, we can do that because we see and have heard and read the testimony of Moses and the Exodus. We can believe that, that, that vengeance is the Lord's, that God will repay, not only because he is just and holy, not only because he is a perfect judge who knows and discerns between good and evil, but because he is a mighty warrior. God sees evil. He sees injustice. He sees sin. And in his strength, he is able to do something. About it. When people hurt you, when you experience injustice, when you fall prey and victim to sin, you can trust that justice is in the hands of God and that our God is not some weak, feeble, passive God who makes empty promises and says, I'll take care of it, but never does. You can believe that God is a mighty warrior. And he will fight for you. He will fight for his people. We also see in this passage that God is a covenant-keeping God. This is what Moses means when he says, The Lord is my father's God. Moses' fathers or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And their God is his God. Several times in the first chapters of Exodus, we are told that God remembered his covenant. That he heard the cries of his people and he remembered the promise he made to his servant Abraham. He saw their affliction. He heard their cries. And the sole basis of the exodus, why were they liberated? Why Why was Pharaoh and the Egyptians defeated? It wasn't simply because of the problem of slavery. At that time, many other tribes, many other nations were enslaved under more powerful empires. The reason why God delivered Israel was because of his covenant promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. Where God promised Abraham, our father in faith, I will bless you and your offspring. I will make you a great nation. Our God is a covenant-keeping God who never breaks any of his promises. He is faithful. The first thing that we see about the worship of God in the Song of Moses is that worship, Christian worship, biblical worship is theocentric. And that means that it is God-centered. It is grounded in who he is and what he does. Our worship director, um, David, He is very selective. He's very discerning on the songs that we sing. And we are committed to a God-centered worship. We want to be able to celebrate. We want to be able to boast. Not in ourselves and our passion. Not in ourselves and our abilities and our greatness. But we want to boast in who God is and his greatness. When we make worship about the person and work of God, here's something that happens. We are spared of the elusive struggle in worship. Friends, as you were worshiping this morning, did you find it to be a struggle? Right? Was, was there tension in your own heart because of various sins in your life? You're just aware of your unworthiness. You're struggling for affection and feeling and emotion, just being present with God here. Growing up in church, I struggled a lot in worship I struggle a lot with my desires my motivation my own readiness it it used to take me like 10 to 15 minutes of just sitting down praying wrestling trying to sing and not being able to sing. I remember at one retreat I struggled so much just existentially with being able to worship and connect with God that I I I was like pounding my chest because I was like Lord why is my heart so hard Why can't I just experience you and freely and joyfully worship? That's how much I was struggling with worship. Have you ever come into a church service where you're just not feeling it? You're not feeling it. You're waiting for something to happen to you. To sense something. And then once that comes, then you'll lift your hands. Then you'll sing loud. But until that happens, you're in this tension. Tension. It's almost like a game of hide and seek with God. But when we center our worship on God, not on our emotions, our feelings, our circumstances, when you center it on who God is, we always have a song to sing. You always have a song to sing. You may have had a crummy week. You may have neglected your spiritual disciplines. You may be like, man, I didn't pray this week except before I ate, right? I haven't spent time in God's word. I definitely haven't evangelized. Definitely haven't fasted. None of those things have been present in my life. I'm so disqualified to be able to sing. We may be prone to wander. We may be in a difficult circumstance or situation in life. But who God is, is unchanging and true. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You always have a song to sing. Our Lord is always beautiful. And worthy of your worship. We can always come into God's house. Into God's presence. And sing his praise. And I, and I hope that you and I would remember this each week. As we gather for worship. That your engagement. That your volume. That your passion wouldn't be level set. By your own emotions. By your own circumstances. Okay. Let us not be the level setters for worship. Let who God is be the standard. May he be the standard in our worship. Would you sing boldly and faithfully because you are singing the truth, the eternal and good truth about who God is. Let me say one thing to nuance this point. We've all heard the rhetoric in church a lot of times, like it's all about God and not about us. I'm not going in that direction. I'm not saying it's all about God and not about us and you don't matter. We need to nuance this. There's a temptation for some of us to swing in the absolute opposite direction and think that as long as we're singing orthodox biblical truths, what you do in your life, where your heart, where your mind, where your desires, where your affections are, do not matter. Okay? There's, there's some of us who think that. Right? You leave your life and your heart at the door and you just come in and you go into just Christian mode. God so loved the world, amen. Jesus died on the cross for me, amen. You just sing that and then you go on your way. Okay. Friends, we are not just singing facts about God as if we're putting music to math or singing the ABCs, right? That's not what's going on. We're not just kind of singing, right doctrine and think that is enough. The song of Moses is absolutely theocentric, but... It must come from your lips. It must come from your heart. You and I must claim him as our God, just as he has claimed us as his own. When you come into worship, do you believe that God is your salvation? He is your deliverer, that he is your God and your father's God. You don't have to come in on cloud nine every week when you worship. You don't. I mean, there's some churches where from the first song, people are jumping, hands raised. I'm like, that's like zero to 16 really fast. I wonder if they're like pumping, pumping like gas through the air vents to make everyone feel really happy and, and jittery. I, I wonder about that. You don't have to come in to the sanctuary on cloud nine. You can come in weary, burdened, struggling. You don't have to be on fire, ready to go when the first drum is played. But you must come. You need to come. You need to come in faith. You need to bring your heart and your life before God. And allow his truth and his light to shine upon you. you need to lay hold to who he is. Not only is worship a response to who God is, it's also a response to what he has done. Let's go to verses 4 to 12 in our passage now. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries, you send out your fury, it consumes them like a stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap, and the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew it with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. Amen. In this section of the song, Israel is singing of how God defeated their enemies and Pharaoh and his armies. And whenever God does something great, he deserves to be praised. Okay? He deserves to be praised. And he's not doing this as some needy um, person who needs approval. Right? Uh, every time I do something good at home, I want my wife to acknowledge it. Right? I change the diaper, I make eye contact with her. Right? I threw out the trash. I want her to acknowledge that. I do a night feed. I'm like, right, uh, that's not what's going on here. Okay. That's not what's going on here. When God does something great, he deserves. He is worthy to be praised. And we see this work of God and response of God's people and the angels all throughout Scripture. When God created the world, the book of Job says the angels shouted for joy. When King David was delivered from his enemies, he wrote psalms of praise. When Mary received news that she would be with child and bear the Son of God in her womb, she responded with her song of praise. And when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the angels sang. The angels sang. This is what God is worthy of. Our worship. Our response to his matchless and beautiful works. So what is it that God did for his people in the Exodus? The Lord in his glorious power, he shattered the enemy. And you have to love the contrast in verse 9 and 10. Pharaoh, he set out to destroy Israel. After he said, after he let them go and just depart, and after Israel Plundered Egypt and took its, uh, many of its spoils, right? Pharaoh set out to get them back. He says, I'm going to get those spoils and I'm going to get those people and I'm going to destroy these evil, problematic Hebrews, at least to him. But it was God who destroyed Pharaoh's army. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. God sent out his fury. Did you know God had fury? God sent out his fury. And it consumed the Egyptians like stubble. Now we may read this passage and think, man, that's, that doesn't sound like a God of love, of grace, of goodness, and mercy. It may seem like God is harsh and extreme. In his dealing with Pharaoh. I mean, when you think about the 10th plague, you might think, God, was that even necessary? Did the angel of death have to pass over Egypt and take the firstborn of every household without the blood of the lamb over its doorposts? How could a good and loving God drown an entire army in the Red Sea? But this is what we must remember as we read and consider the story of the Exodus. It is a foreshadowing of the gospel. It's a foreshadowing of the gospel. Israel was in bondage to Pharaoh. We, without Christ, were in bondage to sin. And like Israel, we needed a deliverance that we are utterly powerless to secure and attain on our own. So God sent Moses as Israel's deliverer. But Jesus came as the greater Moses to set the captives free. And when you think about the gospel, when you think about the cross, we need to see that God deals with our sin. He dealt with our sin in the most devastating and destructive way. He didn't just speak it out of existence. Okay, That's not how we experience the forgiveness of sins. It's only through the death of his only begotten and beloved son, Jesus Christ, that we were freed and spared from our sins. It's not unjust for God to drown a wicked and sinful Egyptian army in the Red Sea. It's not. They were rebels. They were idolaters. The judgment was just. It may seem harsh, but it was just. The real injustice is in the scandal of the cross where a righteous man died for the unrighteous. Where the Son of God Jesus Christ, the bearer, the full bearer of the image of God, the, the nature, the attributes, the person of God, took our place and died on the cross, where the cup of God's wrath was poured out fully on the Son. See, we are called to worship God for what He has done in our lives, and it is good. It is good to praise God for earthly blessings. It's good to praise God for earthly gifts that he provides. I know that that that, that is a motivator for many times in our worship. You had a good week, right? You had a good week, come in, I'm going to have some good worship. Good relationship, good time with your wife. You got a bonus at work. You got good grades at school. Life is good. And so you can come in and when we sing of the goodness of God, you're like, yes, I am living in the goodness of God. Of God. But once again, that's a level set on yourself. That's a level set on your circumstances, okay? It is good to praise God for earthly blessings and circumstances. But what we need to do is recognize that the gospel is the greatest work of God in our lives. It is the work that we most desperately need. And each week, we have an opportunity to respond in song, in worship to the gospel. As the body of Christ. You see, we have a liturgy here. I know our, our, our service is full by the time the sermon starts. Uh, but uh, call to worship, it's pretty skinny. Right? It's pretty thin. We'll all just blame it on parking. We'll just blame it on parking. It's, it wasn't our spouse who took too long to get ready. Or our kids who wouldn't wake up and dress themselves or whatnot. Um, I love our service and our order of worship. Because it's patterned around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We begin with a call, a reading of God's word, his invitation for us to come and to to meet him and commune with him. We sing songs of praise and then we go into this time of confessing our sins. Where we are honest before him. Where we confess all of our, our iniquity, our rebellion, our waywardness. All the ways that we fall short before him. And then after that we receive what's called the assurance of pardon the promise that we are not cast out of God's presence, that God is not angry with us for our idolatry, but instead that God has dealt with our sin through the bloodshed work of Jesus Christ and then we sing our song of renewal. And friends, this should be the loudest song that we sing. This should be the most joyful song that we sing because we remember and celebrate the fact that we are restored that we are beloved, we are accepted because of Jesus Christ. It is our response to the cross, our response to God's grace. Would you practice that with us? Would you live that out? Would you allow the cross to be your boast and not your circumstance? Would you allow the cross to be your boast and not your performance? We've heard two reasons to sing to the Lord so far. First, for who he is. And second, for what he has done. The final reason for us to worship is because of the promise of what he will do. What God has in store for his people in the future. And this should motivate us for worship. Verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard they tremble pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia now the chiefs of Edom dismayed trembling seizes the leaders of Moab all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm they are still as a stone till your people O Lord pass by till the people pass by whom you have purchased you will bring them in and plant them ...on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out... After her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them. Sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Amen. Sisters, y'all bring your tambourines. You see there's an important pivot here. In the song of Moses at verse 13. The song shifts from looking back at the Exodus. To now looking forward at the promised land. And Israel does this. Right? They, they can look forward in the wilderness. They can look forward to the promised land because they believe in the steadfast love of God. Because they have seen and continue to hold fast to the truth that God is their strength. And because God is their mighty warrior, because they know and have seen that God is a, a God who fights for them, they believe that he will lead them home all the way God will lead his people this is the story of redemption okay this is the story of redemption to be a redeemer means that you are buying back you are buying back and this is what God does as the redeemer of his people he buys us back he bought Israel out of slavery from Pharaoh he buys us back from being slaves to sin to now slaves to righteousness Sons and daughters of this world to now being sons and daughters of God. This is what it means for God to be our redeemer. And this is the story. This is the story of redemption. God meets us where we are. For the Hebrews, it was in Egypt. He then sends a deliverer. And he delivers us from sin. And then he brings us to where he is. That's the journey. It's not just I want to get you out of sin so you can live your life and do what you want to do. It's I want to redeem you from sin through the bloodshed work of Jesus Christ so that I can bring you to where I am. Bring you into my family. To bring you into my house. This is the holy abode, the holy mountain of God that Moses and the Israelites are singing of. The promise of what God will do. This journey that is promised before them. It gave Moses and Israel such great courage. Once again, they are no army. They haven't won a battle or even fought a battle before. They are no great military might to believe, to have confidence that they would conquer the promised land. They have no reason to think that they can overcome the Philistines, the Edomites, the Moabites, and the Canaanites. But because of who God is, because of his mighty arm, because of his strength, they with confidence believe that their enemies will be no match, not for them, but for their God. And brothers and sisters, we are called to courage and faith as well. To hold fast to the promise that our God numbers our days, he holds our lives in our hands, and that he will surely lead us home. Do you believe that? You believe that God is leading you home into his holy abode, and that is secure and promised to you. I know that for many of us, the future is a source of fear and anxiety. Right? If you're an optimist, the future is bright. If you're a pessimist, the future is bleak. Right? Which are you? And when you think about the future, I know for a lot of people, there's anxiety. Am I going to get a job after I graduate? Will I ever get married? Are we going to have kids? Will my kids turn out to be okay? Will I be able to pay for my kids' college? Am I going to be able to retire? When we think about the future, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of anxiety. But brothers and sisters, the Christian can have peace and boldness stepping into the future because we believe it. That our God holds all of our days, all of our moments in his hands. That God will lead us every step of the way. And we're going to see God leading his people as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. As a reminder to us that he is with us and leading us. Uh, I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. And so every once in a while you'll hear me start talking like a hick. Um, and... Uh, I, uh, I had the opportunity to go to USC um, for college, and uh, I just had a friend ask me, he's like, when you came out to California, did you know anybody? Did I have any friends? And, and I had no friends, okay, in L.A., no friends on the entire West Coast. I knew one person, and he was a pastor, right? And when you were 18 and a freshman in college, it's not cool to just hang out with a pastor, right? Um, and I was excited, you know, like, you know, uh, with my school, I was, the, I was the kid to go the farthest away from my school in Atlanta. So that was my claim to fame. I wasn't the smartest. I was, like, on the lower half. Um, I didn't win Homecoming King or anything like that. Um, my one claim to fame was, oh, Michael went the farthest away from my school, <laughs> right? Um, and I was kind of proud of that, you know, and I was, like, looking forward to it. I get to go to Cali, right? That's what outsiders call California. Um, But as my summer was ending, my senior year, um, I started getting a little anxious. I was like, I really don't know anybody. And I might be really lonely. And college might be scary. Everyone that I know, everything that I know, all of my comforts and familiarities, I'm leaving behind. And so the month of August, before I moved out for college, was really stressful and really difficult. And one night at a church, we had a worship gathering and some uh, brothers, they sang a special song. And if you're kind of my age and older, you, you might remember this. Uh, it's a song by The Cry called Take My Hand and Walk. Take my hand and walk. And, and as these brothers were, were singing the song, the chorus ministered to me in a powerful, beautiful way. The word said, take my hand and walk where I lead. Keep your eyes on me alone. Don't you say, why were the old days better? Just because you're scared of the unknown, take my hand and walk. And it was through worship, through singing, that God spoke to me and assured me that if I fix my eyes on Jesus Christ, if I hold fast to who God is and his promises and his presence in my life, I have nothing to fear. I have nothing to fear, that I can move forward into the unknown. I can move forward into uncertainty because God is with me. Brothers and sisters, God is with you. God will lead you into your future. He will lead your family into your future. He knows your days. He knows your moments. He knows your direction. And in his grace, he will bring you home. Do you believe that? When Jesus says, I am preparing a place for you. In my father's house, there are many rooms, but I am preparing a place for you. Our passage closes with a very interesting kind of pivot, right? Our passage closes with Miriam, Moses' sister, the prophetess. And she takes a tambourine in her hand and she leads all the ladies. And they start dancing. And then Miriam sings what looks like the first line of Moses' song. The same song that Israel had just sang. And she says, sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. A lot of commentators were kind of going back and forth saying, what does this mean? Does this mean that the song was like the guy sang first and the girl sang second, like a call and response and an echo? And they said, that's, that's possible, that's plausible, right? But uh, one commentator said that actually, the the language changes. The language pivots. You see, when Moses sings the song with Israel, they sing this. I will sing to the Lord. For he has triumphed gloriously. When Miriam sings this song, she sings it to Israel and she sings it to us. And she's calling us to do the same, to sing the song of Moses. You, beloved of God, you sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. His horse and his rider, he has thrown into the sea. Friends, we are invited to sing the song of Moses. And Revelation has this beautiful picture where all of the saints of God, all of the people of God will be gathered before the throne of God. And we will be worshiping. And John actually hears the song. He hears the song of the redeemed. And it is this, verse 3. Friends, that is our future. That is the song that we will get to sing. The song of Moses, married, right? Mashed up with the song of the Lamb. And we are invited to start singing that song today. We're invited to start singing that song with boldness, with faith, with joy, with conviction. A song that describes who our God is. A song that testifies to all that he has done in a song that gives us assurance that our days are held in his hands and we are surely going home to find eternal and perfect rest in his holy abode let's worship the Lamb let's pray Heavenly Father we thank you for your grace in our lives we thank you for the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb We thank you that worship is not just emotive. It does not just engage feelings and hearts. It also engages our intellect, our mind, our thoughts, our imaginations. Father, I pray that we would be a people who worship you both in spirit and in truth. I pray that our church would be a church that is not just loud in noise, but that we would be mighty, and testifying to who you are and all that you have done. Would you make us a people who know how to boast in Jesus Christ, in his life, death, and resurrection. Father, I pray that you would free us. You would free us truly to be able to worship you, meet you, to know you, and find rest in you. Would you be our great redeemer? And would our times here as the body of Christ at all nations, would it be a foretaste of heaven? Would it be a a rehearsal of that final and ultimate worship service?